Welcome to the Dan Isard Show. Uncut and uncensored analysis from author and consultant Dan Isard. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Dan Isard. Hi. Welcome back to the Dan Assard Show on FuneralRadio.com. I'm your host, Dan Assard. That's why we named it that way. In case you don't know much about me, I'm the owner and president of the Foresight Companies. In that, I provide financial and management consulting to funeral home and cemetery owners and managers throughout North America, as well as a bunch of other things. During this podcast, it's going to be my job to take you through the magical world of funeral and cemetery and do it uncut and uncensored. On my podcast today, I'm going to be interviewing Graham Cook. I'm also going to have contributions from Chris Raymond from About.com. In our Finance 101 section, I'm going to walk you through hypothetical pricing analysis. This is a very simple means to guarantee that you're going to have the profit you want at the end of the year by judging today how to set your prices. And this week I'm starting with a brand new addition to our podcast. It's the news. As I search for the blend between shtick and content, I'm going to try to find the means to make these podcasts up-to-date, relevant, and a little bit humorous. So now, let's get to the news. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Dateline Virtual World. Since we were together last, Facebook equals death book. Facebook says, as of now, quote, we will maintain the visibility of a person's content and Facebook page as is. Close quote. The company goes on to explain that when someone dies, they're not going to be shutting down their page because it respects the choice a person made in life while giving their extended community of friends ongoing visibility to the same content they could see while the person was alive. Based upon this, Facebook strongly encourages that there be no scantily clad or drinking pictures on their page because St. Peter said he will use this as a reason to deny you entry into heaven. Dateline, Los Angeles, California. Eden Memorial Park Cemetery. A Jewish cemetery in Los Angeles owned by Service Corp. Litigation was filed and settled based upon the way SCI operated this Jewish cemetery. Employees allegedly broke as many as 1,500 buried concrete vaults, according to the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. Although state investigators reported in November of 2009 that they found no evidence of wrongdoing, a Los Angeles Superior Court judge later ruled the cemetery had intentionally disposed of evidence. SCI's Regional Vice President Oliver North denied the allegation. Dateline, Pennsylvania. After a more than five-year-long trial, which resulted in almost a complete ruling in favor of the position of Ernie Hefner, 
the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court overturned the lower court ruling radically preserving the law in Pennsylvania as to who can own a funeral home and what services can be offered in a funeral home. This preserves the law which goes back to 1935 on how Pennsylvania funeral homes should be operated. Based upon this ruling, funeral directors in Pennsylvania must still hitch up their wagons with white horses for funeral processions and black horses for removals. Before we go to break, here's Chris Raymond, About.com's expert on death and dying, with a challenging trivia question for you. Chris? Thanks, Dan. This episode's trivia question concerns the last words spoken by famous musicians. This rock guitarist's last words, quote, Don't worry, it's not loaded, which he said on January 23, 1978, surely rank among the most ironically unfortunate of all time. Can you name this musician? Here's a hint for you. Born in 1946 in Chicago, the very name he would give the band he later co-founded, this talented rock musician played guitar, banjo, accordion, electric bass, and even the drums. He could also sing, and he provided the vocals for many of Chicago's early songs. Think you know the name of the rock guitarist whose last words were, Don't worry, it's not loaded? I'll give you the answer after this brief message from Dan's sponsors. What do more than 2,000 funeral home and 800 cemetery owners have in common? They have trusted the power of the financial and management consulting advice provided by the Foresight Companies and its president, Dan Assard. Merger and Acquisition business succession, accounting, pricing, marketing, web management. Call 800-426-0165 to put the power of foresight to work for you. UPD Urns leads the industry with our unique collection of cremation urns and jewelry, offering an exclusive line, including the hand-painted Titan Brass Urn, the Peaceful Pillow Biodegradable Urn, and the Southwest Reku Urn, all priced under $100 with free shipping. So visit updearns.com slash funeral radio today and get 20% off your first order. UPD Urns, memorable cremation urns and jewelry for funeral homes. Thanks and welcome back. Before the commercial break, Chris Raymond, About.com's expert on death and dying, asked us to name a famous Chicago personage who happened to have been a rock musician whose last words were, don't worry, it's not loaded. Up until the phrase musician, I was leaning towards Al Capone. But Chris, why don't you tell us who it really was? Dan, the musician was Terry Kath, who co-founded the rock group Chicago. While playing a solo game of Russian roulette after a party by putting an unloaded 38 caliber handgun to his head and pulling the trigger several times, Kath tried the same thing with a 9mm pistol that he assumed was also empty. Unfortunately, he was wrong. The gun went off and he died instantly, just one week before his 32nd birthday. Thanks, Chris. To discover the last words spoken by other famous people, as well as useful information about funerals, burials, and grief, check out Chris's website at www.dying, that's spelled D-Y-I-N-G, dot about, dot com. That's dying.about.com. My guest today 
is Graham Cook. Graham has been the longtime president of Homesteaders Life Insurance Company, and he's recently begun the succession to the company's ninth president, Steve Lank. Today I'm going to talk with Graham about pre-need life insurance, homesteaders, his career, and what the funeral world needs to do to remain profitable. Graham, welcome to the Dan Assard Show on FuneralRadio.com. Thank you, Dan. I look forward to it. Graham, as we talk today, I'd really like, uh, I, I don't want to make this a, uh, a pre-eulogy. Uh, you have a lot of experience, uh, and, and I really think that and I want to capture that for our listeners. So if, if you don't mind, start off by telling me a little bit about uh, the changes that you've seen as long as you've been in the pre-need market. Well, there there have been a number of changes, and there are a lot of things that have stayed the same, Dan. Um, the pre-need market um, has fully matured. There was a – when I came on board in the late 60s and early 70s, the line between pre-need and final expense was kind of blurry. So, so one thing that has happened over the years, primarily in the 80s, the, there was a fork in the road where a final expense – went down one way and pre-need went down the other. So um, so that that was, we kind of thought we were in the pre-need business, but we were really in the final expense business. And to date, there's still some confusion, I think, on the part of some as to which is which. But um, I've seen I've seen the business become more of a, an integral part of the funeral home's business plan, probably in the case of many, not as much as uh, it should be or as much as we would like it to be. I think we, uh, as an industry, uh, still don't have, except in a few rare exceptions, much of the mind share of the funeral home. Um, they, uh, they are in the business uh, kind of because consumers demand it. They get X amount of Medicaid walk-in kind of business. So it... Uh, that, that's probably one of the biggest changes. I, I, I think it's uh, one of the other changes, and then I'll let you react to it, that I, that I think has changed in recent years. It's not as proactive a business as it was when uh, in the late 80s or in the 70s even. Um, I, I, I judge it by this. When I'm out traveling and I'm going to meet the uh, pre-need counselor, uh, we call the funeral home. And they connect us to the pre-need counselor's office, and they're usually in. And when I think about that, going to the old days, I think, A, they didn't even know who they were when we called them up. B, uh, they didn't have an office there because the deal was to keep them out, and they were out and not at their desk. So it's become a much more of a... Uh, uh, a walk-in business, and I think the stats that, that the business show... Um, you know, indicate that it's it's heavily single premium, not much multiple pay, not much getting out in the street anymore. Everybody talks about go buys, and but I don't think people want people knocking on your door at seven o'clock at night for a total stranger to sell your funeral. I think that's changed societally. Uh, that's changed the business. You know, and you you talk about the the change during 
your experience in 1995, uh, approximately when you took control of Homesteaders, you, your entire company would do $62 million of premium. Today, you have uh, one or two third-party marketers that are doing that entire amount as part of your almost $400 million of premiums uh, that you did last year as a company. Uh, what did you see? What's causing uh, the uh, premium increase uh, to be more than 500%? Well, the... Um a little bit of luck, for one thing. Our timing was right. The uh, the big thing that, that that pivoted for us, which occurred really back in '92, was our decision to to make the move from being a, a pure final expense company to a pre need company. And there's a lot of history there. I can drag you through if you want to. But but basically, we uh, established a salaried field force of our account executives and. And the, the big thing, which will be come no surprise to you or your listeners, is it's a relationship business. You can't, you cannot establish relationships with funeral directors sitting in Des Moines, Iowa, and doing it with direct mail and slick ads. You have to have people on the street calling on funeral homes. And if you go back a little further, you'll find that the that the real trajectory took off when we put account executives in the in the areas uh, calling. On on funeral homes and, uh, you know, made ourselves, uh, you know, a, a fixture in their communities rather than just being a, another company out in Des Moines, Iowa. Obviously, what's an insurance company is different from many other businesses. Uh, you're dealing with uh, transferring the risk from the funeral home or the consumer to the insurance company, but at the same time, the insurance company's got to be very, very risk averse. Your, your own surplus has grown from seven million to almost a hundred and fifty million dollars over the course of, of your tenure. Uh, how did you build it up? How did you make it more secure? Well, the um, I think the in the pre need business, it's it's two things. It's having a conservative mortgage portfolio, and you and I have talked about that all the time. We We've known each other. Um, so we really never took big swings in our investments. It was nice, steady. We, we kept it pretty high quality, which I think is, is the way to go for the long term. Um, so, so that was a big factor. The other, the other factor, which is never very popular with funeral homes, but it's, uh, it's proactive spread management. In other words, uh, taking our what we can earn on the investments and translating that to what we can pay as growth. And uh, we've always we've never been the highest growth company, I don't think. And uh, but you know, being proactive on our on our management of our invested assets relative to the growth we were crediting uh, has served us well, both Dan in in accumulating surplus now, but even more importantly. Uh, being in a position to have to pay the claim somewhere down the road uh, because the invested assets will be there to cover it. So I uh, hope that answers your question. When you took the reins at Homesteaders, had I told you that someday uh, during your tenure you'd be up to almost $2.5 billion of assets, would you have believed me? I would have said you're flipping nuts. You're, you're, 
You're crazier than I thought Dan Assard really is. You know? No, I have no, I had, of course, you know, one of the things, Dan, when you're young, and I'm going back to the early 70s, more so than 95, you know, I thought this was a big flipping company. You know, it had uh, $16 million of assets when I came on board in 1966. You know, for a 19-year-old kid in college, that sounds like one ton of money. So a lot of a lot of what happened over there is I didn't know what I didn't know. And uh, so, yeah, I as I look back on a $2.5 billion company, it's pretty phenomenal how, you know, and, it's, and there wasn't any big pop. It was just... Five percent a year, and uh, that's the way it worked out. Other than a decline in the crediting rate, which is directly uh, resulting based upon the financial market, what, what changes in pre-need uh, as a product have you seen? Insurance product. The um, the changes in the insurance product. It, it's been pretty static, really. Some some firms have. Uh, come off with, you know, trying to be too innovative and uh, and it's uh, either backfired on them or it hasn't been accepted. It's, it, the product has been pretty well commoditized. It's it's fairly neutral. One of the things just in terms of a product uh, that I've noticed in the uh, last few years, um, the the product, as you're well aware, is so is so driven by the single premium market, which has lower margins in it. And everybody that wants to be in the business wants higher margin products. Um, and what I've seen in order to do that, I've seen that the the premium rates and the the amount charged to the uh, families has increased significantly to help organizations, whether they be third parties or insurance companies, to cover the high acquisition costs uh, that are associated with, uh, you know, a proactive program. So, you know, I have I have seen uh, the consumer cost go up, and it's translated into a lot of different a lot of different ways. But product wise, it's uh, with a few exceptions and a few twists and turns. Um, somebody has a competitive advantage for about a nanosecond, and then somebody else copies it. So. Uh, Graham, if, uh, if I'm a manager of a funeral home, and how should I decide what pre-need insurance carrier I should choose to place my trust with? Well, the simple answer is call 1-800-477-4-PRE-NEED and your, all your, all your questions are answered. That'd be us, but, um, that's a, you know, that's a, Difficult question to answer. First of all, the the firm needs to decide what it is they're trying to do with their pre-need. I don't know how many times I've, I've been in a meeting with a funeral home and you're trying to get an idea for where their pain is and uh, they'll talk about you know, commissions don't mean anything, they want to serve the families, that long-term growth is important, and then boom – they flip right around on you, and commissions are the most important thing. And they, you know, sign up with somebody else, and uh, they, for, you know, which you wonder what were they thinking. So, I think that the the, the first and foremost uh, thing you can do is sit down with somebody knowledgeable. Could be in your firm, could be a consultant like yourself, but really find out what it is you're trying to do with this program and. Uh, 
you know, we we look at the marketplace and, and we are kind of a, a total solution provider. We have a lot of uh, different things we offer. I tell people if you want the highest commission, the lowest premium, uh, the highest growth, we're not going to be the player. You can find somebody that want that can provide that if that's really, really, really what you want. But you got to decide what you really, really want. And uh, so that that is absolutely the first step that a firm needs to take, in my opinion. I'm talking with Graham Cook, long-time leader of Homesteaders Life Insurance Company. Uh, Graham, obviously, if we have a Hall of Fame, we also have to have a Hall of Shame. What, what are some of the mistakes that uh, insurance companies, funeral homes, salespeople have made in the marketing of pre-need that we have to uh, keep from occurring in the future? Well, the one that, that um, let's start with the insurance companies. And aside from, I'm going to leave just straight crooks out of it. I think we could sit here and name a few of those. But um, one of the things that happens that's, that is disaster waiting to happen is firms get into this business and I could rattle off some names that would be that you would recognize, and they they don't price the product properly. They go in and they they think this is like life insurance, but they they forget the fact that half of them are gone in six years, and they were 74 years old to start with. Um, so so firms get into the business and price it wrong. Now, so. Tough luck for them. No, tough luck for the funeral director because at the end of the day, they exit the business, and oftentimes they end up uh, lowering the growth or taking the growth to nothing. So um, so the insurance companies need to do a better job of of kind of doing their homework, and the the funeral directors um, need to to show some caution and some due diligence. I, I, I have... As more companies come into the business, I have the words that I that kind of grate my soul are, well, we're going to try beta, beta, boat of life. You know, we're going to give them a try, you know, and it's that's a 20, 30 year commitment to try somebody. And, um, you know, why not? Why don't you go with somebody who's got some kind of track record that you know what's going on? And uh, uh, there are a lot of things we can sit here, lots of analysis you can do and lots of spreadsheets. But, uh, um, you know, really, if you're new at pre-need and really don't understand it, go with, and it doesn't have to be homesteader. There are a lot of good companies. But somebody who has a track record and has uh, invested assets in high quality, uh, the higher the quality, in my opinion, people ask me, what what should I be looking for? Just get with somebody who has high-quality assets that will be there to pay the claim. Forget about the marketing hype and the cute ads and all that stuff, and just make sure the investments are there. Uh, and, and if you don't watch anything else, watch those. Graham, I'm just curious. Uh, the growth of homesteaders has mainly come from uh, what I would say organic growth from within, uh, adding more funeral homes, uh, getting more production per funeral home, as opposed to some of the other uh, very strong pre-need insurance companies have grown through acquisition. Uh, was this a deliberate effort on, on uh, you and your board's part? Well, it was kind of, uh, it was deliberate in the sense early on we didn't have the capital to uh, acquire 
any companies. We did, you know, we've had some small acquisitions over the years. Um, so in that sense, it was deliberate. The other thing, and I can tell you two circumstances in the last 60 days where um, the, the pre-need business, uh, to make that distinction from the final expense business, but pre-need blocks of business and pre-need in-force uh, almost always is not worth what the company thinks it's worth. So if you have an opportunity to purchase or acquire a company that has in-force business plus distribution plus uh, a funeral home network, that would be look be worth looking at. But to buy a funeral home block and uh, just as a as a money transaction, uh, those just never work out. And uh, you've got about a if you take on a company that uh, has let's just say a hundred funeral home relationships and you think you're going to leverage that, you'll be lucky to keep fifty of them. If you look back at the UFL Assurance Forethought all of the different mergers and what have you, they keep about, you know, 50% of what they uh, they think they bought. So the, the economics just, in many cases, just aren't there. You mentioned a, a word that I wasn't planning to ask you about, but what the heck? Forethought. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1980s come along, suddenly Hill & Brand Industries announces they're coming into the pre-need business while – Homesteaders is really uh, a very small company. Uh, forethought today is not the forethought of the 80s and 90s. Is there any pride in having survived and, and grown and become a more substantial player than forethought is in the pre-need market? Well, I, 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 uh, I take tremendous pride in that, especially – if I can digress for one second to that point, I remember I was at an NAIC meeting in Washington or New York in uh, the 80s, and uh, SCI, Guardian Plan, and Forethought were kind of running the show with regard to uh, uh, regulation and some of the things that were being talked about at the time. And, and uh, I said, you know, somehow we've got to get to that party or we're going to get – Smothered because in 1986, uh, Guardian Plan, SCI's uh, marketing arm, kind of owned it and, and Forethought was moving into it. So, uh, yes, absolutely. I think back on uh, when in 1986, uh, PFP was doing more business than we were. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty humble there at the start. So, to be where we are is. Uh, uh, but it's it has been organic. It's been one funeral home porch at a time, and I'm proud of that. that's the way we grew it. Graham, talk to me about the uh, the guarantee. The guarantee is this two word phrase that basically the funeral homes in most cases say I guarantee that whatever the value of the account is when death occurs, I'm going to accept as payment in full, and that's for many consumers one of the benefit statements for prearranging. Uh, is the guarantee a good thing for the funeral home, bad thing, or uh, somewhere in between? Well, we've kicked this old uh, chestnut around quite a bit, too, over the years, Dan. The, uh, you know, obviously, as I've said before, it's it's 
the funeral home choice depending on what their marketplace is. I, I look at it this way, is just standing alone, you'd have to wonder what in the world are they doing? There's no other financial uh, other than the, some of the colleges where you pay once and you have a guarantee. The I look at it as a as an advertising marketing tool. Um, if the cost of guaranteeing it is, it, would it be more or less than buying a lot of TV ads, uh, building a big funeral home at the corner of some expressway? Would it be? Uh, I, I tend to look at it in the broader arrangement, the broader spectrum of what what they're trying to accomplish. And if that's a tool that they leverage the funeral home, um, uh, they, they need to go into it with their eyes closed or their eyes open. But uh, the, uh, I, think it's, I think it can be used effectively. Um, I think that uh, firms and owners are a little short-sighted on the idea. They get this year's revenue in play and uh, don't think about what it's going to be like 30 years down the road. So, uh, but I think it can work if you, if you market it and account for it effectively. Whole nature of, of uh, homesteaders. Uh, how would you say that this differs, that your company differs from a company such as NGL or FDLIC, who I think are, you know, pretty good players in, in, in the market and, and large companies to boot. Sure. Um, well, I mean, we, we have our, you know, competitive advantage, we think, um, sort of two things. One, uh, I know it sounds kind of trite when we talk about our mutuality and, and one of those companies you mentioned is a mutual, but, that definitely gives you a, a longer-term outlook on things as opposed to uh, a family-owned or a stock company, and we can elaborate on that. But um, the the other thing which I think is has been part of our success, and I've been criticized for it, uh, is maintaining a total focus on on this business. So. Uh, on the pre-need business. You know, we're a monoline company. It's all we do. It's all we come to work doing every day. So while there are other mutual companies in the business, uh, there are not, to my knowledge, mutual companies that just focus on this like a chicken on a June bug every day, that this is what, this is what we do. We're not distracted by other lines of business. And, uh, and, I, I I think, and Dan, if that was my elevator speech, that's what I'd stick with. <laughs> You're listening to the Dan Assard Show on Funeral Radio. My guest today, Graham Cook, uh, the longtime leader of Homesteaders Life Insurance Company, uh, a guy that's never had to write a second resume in his lifetime. That's right. Uh, Graham, I, I have one question that I'd like to First one. I'm still writing the first. No, I didn't write a first one. One of the questions I, I like to ask my guests is kind of a wrap-up question, uh, is this. You've been in this uh, business a long time. What changes do you think need to be made to the funeral business for it to survive in a profitable fashion into the future? 
Let me see. My crystal ball, since I'm moving, I must have misplaced my crystal ball. The um, I, I'll give you some thoughts of what I think they need to address. Now, whether they can get these things done, and I, I don't pretend to be knowledgeable, uh, totally knowledgeable about funeral service. Obviously, our fortunes rise and fall on funeral service because that's our sole line of business. The uh, couple three, then we can pick them apart if you'd like. But one, obviously, how they respond to changing attitudes of the public. And everybody's got an opinion on that. You know, I'm going to build an event center and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So I don't know if they're, if they've struck upon the, the magic uh, chord there. But that is a challenge, and uh, there have been plenty written, uh, even by such notables as yourself, on what they should be doing to address that. Um, probably the other piece that, that is even more of a crapshoot is how they're going to respond to the aging population and, and how we're going to respond to the aging population. Um, one of the interesting things about this baby boom bubble, of which I am one, and you're not too far behind me, is that, uh, uh, you know, we, and there's re- the FAMIC research kind of supports this, is that the, uh, we don't think we're going to get old until we're 80. I mean, that's, that's when we, that's, that's what we consider old. And uh, so the, the attitudinal idea of planning for your funeral and your own mortality may get pushed back even further um, to where now we're selling 74-year-olds. We might be uh, selling 84-year-olds. Who knows? Before they finally uh, get to that point where whatever it is, and we've got lots of research on it, that trips the trigger that they want to talk about uh, planning their funeral. So... Um, the baby boomers are a, uh, they're more than just a, a classification. When you look at the chart that you see that death rate start to climb in about 2020, um, how the industry reacts to that is going to be, uh, or how, how they cope with that. And it may be beyond their control if they have some of those boomers don't want to uh, align themselves with, with funerals. Um, Another one that I think about, and I think it's kind of fun to ponder on, is just are they nimble? Is the business nimble enough to uh, respond to some unknown uh, threat? And uh, God forbid it could be something like a a pandemic or something like that. Um, But more specifically, somebody entering the business. the funeral business and disrupting the uh, kind of the value chain and uh, the and I, I since you've given me the soapbox I'll I get on this but the the dying has become less of an event more of a process and people come into touch with their mortality much earlier in the curve unfortunately uh, the funeral directors, for the most part, are still waiting for the phone to ring at death. Yet the hospices and the retirement facilities and the uh, other uh, social groups and what have you are are shaping 
the attitudes of people long before the funeral director ever has a shot at him in his little two-day window. I think that is one of the biggest challenges. Uh, I sit on a hospice board. Um, they get to spend the average of 51 days with a family sitting in the hospice uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning playing checkers, talking about what? What's going to happen to dad? And uh, the funeral directors have not taken the lead in that uh, conversation, and I think that's something that they need to do. So those are kind of my headlines. Graham, I think they're great headlines. I appreciate you uh, taking this interview with me, and I appreciate the time that we've had together. Uh, you've been listening to The Dan Assard Show on FuneralRadio.com. Before going to our break right now, I'm going to ask you a riddle. Maybe this riddle is more important for our young funeral directors and apprentices that are listening but I'm sure some of you older ones are going to be stumped by this as well. It comes to me from Sal Faranga, a New York City funeral director. Here's the question. Sal asks, if you are leading a procession with 100 cars through the streets of any major city and Two miles or more from the cemetery, your hearse breaks down. What is the first action that the funeral director in charge should do? If you want to know the answer, listen to my sponsors, and then when we come back from commercial, I'll explain it to you. Hello, my name is Raymond Akins, and I serve as host moderator to one of Funeral Radio's newest channels. It's called the Director's Exchange, and if you haven't had a chance to listen in, I'd like to extend to you right now an invitation to come check us out. What we aim to do is showcase the thought leaders in funeral business, people who I refer to as ranking amongst our very best and brightest. I think you'll find the format and the quality of discussion simply fascinating. Again, you're invited to come check us out. And you can find us anytime at the Director's Exchange on FuneralRadio.com. Thank you so much for listening. This is Cindy Neely Spence, your host for Make Ceremony Matter More. On this program, I talk shop with life cycle celebrants about their experiences creating unique ceremonies. Our show demonstrates how end-of-life ceremonies can be different. It highlights unique approaches to meeting what many funeral industry clients are seeking. Please join us to learn how to make ceremony matter more for your clients, only on Funeral Radio. Before the break, a riddle was proposed by Sal Faranga, a New York City funeral director. Sal wanted to know if you're leading a large procession and more than two miles away from the cemetery, your hearse breaks down, what is the first action that the funeral director in charge should perform. Sal's answer? Take the nameplates out of the hearse and out of the limo so nobody knows what funeral home screwed this up. Thanks, Sal, for your idea. If you have other ideas that you want us to riddle about, please feel free to send them to me. Care of our Facebook page for The Dan Assard Show. 
or through FuneralRadio.com's Facebook page. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Oh, fiddle, fiddle. Welcome back to the Dan Asard Show on FuneralRadio.com. In this section of Finance 101 this week, I'm going to deal with a very important concept. It's called a hypothetical profit analysis. The hypothetical profit analysis is a very, very complex and difficult to understand concept, but the result is amazing. It predicts whether or not you're going to have a profit at the end of the year. Now, allow me to explain to you exactly how we create this hypothetical profit analysis. There is a handout on our homepage that you can click and follow along, which will give you a bit of a format for you to play with. If you're an Excel software guru, I bet you could figure this out just as easily. The objective of setting your prices is to make sure that when the year is over and the dust is settled, you have a profit. You don't only just have a profit, you have the profit that you expect to have. The hypothetical profit analysis guarantees that you'll be able to track and predict whether or not you're going to have the profit that you want to have. Let's start with your overhead. As we covered in our last podcast, overhead is a function of several components. Your CPA or bookkeeper or accountant gives you their impression of your overhead. However, it's wrong. It's wrong because it leaves some things out that need to be added in. Your accountant can tell you what your tax-deductible overhead is, but you have a lot of things that are not deductible. Keep in mind, meals that you're included in generally are not 100% deductible. Principal on notes are not deductible. There are other expenses that you have in the course of running your business that have to be depreciated or amortized over the course of a lease. And therefore, it's not a dollar-for-dollar expense and overhead. So figure out what your deductible overhead is and add to it your non-deductible items. Then you're going to add another factor. That other factor is your capital expenditures. This is the routine reinvestment in your physical plant equipment that you're going to make in the course of a typical year. You might say that's covered by depreciation, but depreciation is looking in the rear view mirror while you're setting your prices through your front windshield. We then want to add your income taxes to your overhead because your corporation will have income taxes or if you're an LLC or a subchapter S, those taxes are going to be passed through to you as the individual, as the owner. But income taxes on the earnings from the business have to be part of your overhead. 
The last thing, keep in mind, we add is profit. Profit is not a dirty word. Of all the words my kids would come home saying from school that would cause me to wash their mouth out with soap, profit was not one of them. In fact, if they ever did come home and say the word profit, I'd probably give them a hug. You're allowed to conclude what your profit should be. You're allowed to estimate the profit you want to have. But if you don't build profit into your overhead, trust me, it won't happen. So overhead equals your deductible overhead, non-deductible items, capital expenditures, taxes, and profit. That's your total overhead. Now, how do we translate your total overhead to your GPL? Well, keep in mind your GPL, your general price list, is trying to establish the allocation of your service fees. So the first thing that you have to allocate is not your service fees, but your profit from merchandise. Now, we all know there's a lot of different ways to try to figure out how much of a markup you should have and how to apply it. There are means called a bell curve, a flat dollar amount, or a flat markup percentage. But whatever tool you're going to use, keep it simple. I don't care which one you use. They all stink. They all work. Just pick one. The good news is that over the next 20 or 30 years in funeral service, profit from merchandise is going to become something that your grandparents would talk about because we have more and more non-casketed services that you're dealing with. However, before we start dealing with merchandise and markup and all these other things, we've got to address case count. Case count is absolutely critical to setting your prices properly. You can look at the last three years, five years, ten years. But frankly, I think three years is a good enough indication of the past to predict the future in most cases. We could look at trends up or down. But the key is not the number. The key is the defined nature of the cases. You're going to have casketed cases, non-casketed cases, trade and shipping cases, and indigent cases. Let's look at that breakdown for the past three years. Maybe if things are relatively normal and there's no real change in patronage or new competition coming in, then we could look at a three-year average. But here's where I'm going to get absolutely crazy with you. Rather than thinking about a three-year average, which is 100% of the last three years divided by three, how about looking at 90% of the last three years? You can't control case count. You can't control death. Oh, maybe if your grandfather is a terrible driver... You can scare the hell out of some people, but you cannot control death. So let's look at the last three years of casketed calls, non-casketed calls, trade, shipping, or indigent. 
And now let's divide each of those components by 90%. See, if I set my prices or expectation of profit from merchandise on 90%, one of two things is going to happen. I'm either going to be right or I'm going to be wrong. If, on the other hand, I assumed 100% of my last three years as my case count, and I'm wrong, I'm going to be broke. If I use 90%, and I'm right, and I've included all of my cash cost for overhead, my non-deductible overhead, my capital expenditures, taxes, and profit, and I recover it all on 90% of my calls, well, I might be a little ego shaken, but I'll have enough money to afford my therapy bills to correct my ego. The other thing that might actually happen is you set your prices based upon 90% of your calls, and you hit 100%. Oh my goodness gracious, think about that. Think about the added profit. Think about the added cash that you'll have to hold. What are you going to do? Well, if you don't want to pay taxes, you can do the soupy sales method of dealing with this excess money. Soupy sales was a TV comic in the 1960s, and soupy told the boys and girls that were watching his show to go in their mommy and daddy's wallets and take out those pictures of dead presidents and send them to Uncle Soupy. Well, boys and girls, Uncle Soupy's dead. But Danisard's still alive. So in the event you wind up having more profit than you want, send some money this way to your favorite podcast broadcaster. Or, if you want to be a fuddy-duddy, Keep it, put it in a bank account, and use it to protect yourself when you have a really terrible year. But once we know our overhead, we can first determine our profit from merchandise. And again, don't look at all merchandise sales. Look at 90% of your three-year average. That's going to give you a profit from merchandise. Subtract that from your total overhead needed to recover, and now we're going to have a total overhead needed to recover from service fees. Then, assume the 16 different items that are on your general price list. Allocate these items against that 90% of the events that you'll probably be serving. Don't assume that every family is going to use every item on your GPL. They don't. If, in fact, you were a 100-call firm and 80 families last year used your facilities, then you're going to assume 72 are going to use them this year. Whatever your service fee is for your facilities, multiply that times, in this hypothetical, 72, and you'll generate a certain amount of revenue. If I do that for all of the 16 items on my GPL, Now, I'll see whether if I hit my mark at 90%, whether or not I've got the profit I need to operate. 
90% times the number of events times your allocation. If you're not sure, put it on an Excel spreadsheet and move the allocation around. Frankly, I like to see somewhere between 40 and 55% of my total recovery needed on a per call basis put to the things that are truly non-declinable. Of course, the first non-declinable we have is the basic non-declinable service fee. But you know, removal is also pretty much non-declinable. Imagine, if you will, somebody calls you up and says, Dad died, he's in the living room. How much is a removal? And you tell them it's some dollar amount. They have two options. They may say, okay, please come and be of service to us. Or they might say, that's too much money. I would tell you to say to that family, how much would I have to pay you to get up in the middle of the night, get dressed, drive from my nice warm bed to my funeral home, get out my cot with linens, hire another person to go with me to come to your house to pick up a dead body that probably has soiled itself to bring them back to the funeral home so that somebody can start preparing that body according to the wishes of that family. How much would I have to pay you to do those tasks and just be quiet? I get the feeling whatever your service fee is, is going to be pretty inexpensive compared to what they want to get paid. So allocate your biggest components to the things that are truly non-declinable. Removal is one of them. So is transportation to either the cemetery, to the airport, another funeral home, or to the crematory. And in the event you're in New York or some other big city, trust me, they're not going to call a cab. And if they try to figure out what it costs to rent a U-Haul truck to do this, they'll come back and pay your fees. So that's how to do a hypothetical profit analysis. You're listening to The Dan Assard Show on FuneralRadio.com. You've been listening to The Dan Assard Show. Uncut and uncensored analysis for the funeral and cemetery world. My guests on this podcast has been Graham Cook of Homesteaders Life Insurance Company, Chris Raymond from About.com, and a contribution from listener Sal Faranga. I want to thank executive producer Tyler Frazier, my segment producer Catherine Bellavo. Please make sure you find us on Facebook and like us on Facebook. Or sign up for the automatic downloads through the iTunes podcast store. 
Make sure you read my columns and feature articles in the Director Magazine, as well as my feature articles in the ICCFA Magazine, American Cemetery, and American Funeral Director. Don't forget there are attachments and notes on our webpage to help you better follow along with this and put these ideas into implementation. I don't know whether you heard the recent story that Hillary Clinton went to a psychic and the psychic told her to prepare yourself for widowhood. Your husband is about to die a violent death. Mrs. Clinton took a deep breath and asked the psychic, will I be acquitted? As always, if I've offended you today, please tell your friends. You've been listening to The Dan Assard Show on FuneralRadio.com.